welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, a speech excerpt by Alan Watts, This American Life, and Radiolab. Speaking of uh, people with mental issues, our first story, Anna Kasparian, mm -hmm. is Bill Maher on The View. And yes. I don't mean Bill Maher, I mean Sherry Shepard with the mental issues. <laughs> right. Bill Maher was on The View, and mm -hmm. he was talking to Sherry Shepard about uh, religion, right? And he basically asks her, uh, when you speak to God, does God speak back to you? <laughs> All and, right, this ought to be good. And uh, she basically said yes. Well, let's watch. Okay, let's do it. But the, but the God who, who was born of a virgin, died, was resurrected three days later, mm -hmm. died for everybody's sins, right. that was an old story going around the Mediterranean for a thousand years. Uh, Horus uh, is an Egyptian God, yeah. the exact same story. He raised somebody named Lazarus from the dead. Mithra, a Persian God, Krishna, the Indian God. Because I know in believing God, you have to suspend a lot of logic in believing God. But there when you, you did this movie, you talked to a lot of people about God. Have you ever just talked to God and asked God what is he? Thing. I love the look on Mars face. Well, Whoopi stepping in there to right. save the the mess that was about to happen. But she shouldn't have. That's right. what I mean. What are we watching The View for if we can't have a mess? Right. And Bellevue is obviously a psych ward. So that's what he was referring to. Yeah, psychiatric hospital in New York. Uh, I grew up in the New York area. So like to me, like Bellevue, of course. That's where, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it, I don't know. Now I'm going to offend people again. Yeah, let's not get into the discussion. Like, I know exactly why you wanted to do the story. And it's just a leeway for you to start talking about religion again, which would be terrible. All right. So let's uh, move okay. on. All right, before we move on, let me just get one cute thing. Okay, now I'm reading about the New Testament in the Bible, right? And <laughs> there's this theory that uh, Jesus was chubby. I don't know why, but that amuses me to no end. <laughs> and uh, if they hate quote all these different verses in the Bible where Jesus is uh, chowing down on stuff. And he's like, all right, come on, let's eat. And then he addresses his critics, and he says, yeah, my critics call me gluttonous. And for some reason, that really humanized Jesus for me. I don't even know if this Jesus character exists. My guess is he doesn't. But if there really was a person, apparently there's a good chance he was chubby. And then you get to thinking, like, he doesn't seem like the, like, you know, Jesus seems so holy and skinny and the robes and the beard and stuff. You get a sense of like a fat Jew who's running around the Middle East, and he's saying, I'm the son of God! Listen to me! I got miracles! Anybody got a gyro or a falafel sandwich? Then you're like, really? They believe that guy? <laughs> anyway, Chubby Jesus amused me. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to share.
A faith-based TV repair shop is severely backed up. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Evangelical customers flocked to Let There Be Light Electronics when it first opened its doors last May, but since then, the shop has been severely backed up and is now on the verge of bankruptcy. Owner John Mayhe says he and his staff of two have been praying very, very hard over the appliances, but so far, only one repair has been successfully completed. I accidentally knocked over a TV, and when I picked it up, it was working. Praise the Lord. May he also says he's received a lot of angry phone calls from customers and bill collectors, but maintains a sunny disposition thanks to his faith in Jesus. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. When you try your best but you don't succeed When you get what you want but not what you need When you feel so but you can't sleep Stuck in rivers And the tears come streaming down your face When you lose something you can't replace When you love someone but it goes to Everybody these days is interested in spiritual development. And uh, wisely, because we want to change our consciousness. Many people are well aware that this egocentric consciousness is a hallucination. And that uh, they presume it's the function of religion to change it. Because that's what the Zen Buddhists and yogis and all these people in the Orient are doing. They are changing their state of consciousness to get something called Satori, or mystical experience, or nirvana, or moksha or what have you. And everybody around here is really enthused about that because uh, you don't get that in church. <laughs> I mean, there have been Christian mystics, but the church has been very quiet about them. <laughs> but in the average church, all you get is talk. There's no meditation, no spiritual discipline. They tell God what to do interminably, as if he didn't know. <laughs> and then they tell the people what to do, as if they could or even wanted to. <laughs> and then they sing religious nursery rhymes. <laughs> and then, to, to, to cap it all, the Roman Catholic Church, which did at least have an unintelligible service, which was... <laughs> Which was, you know, it was real mysterious and suggested vast magic going on. They went and put the thing into bad English. And they took away incense and they took away, they became a bunch of Protestants. And the thing was just terrible. So now all these Catholics are at loose ends. As Claire Booth Luce put it, not to be a pun, but she said, you know, it's no longer possible to practice contemplative prayer at Mass. Because you're being advised, exhorted, edified all the time and it becomes a bore think of God listening to all those prayers I mean do have I mean talking about grieving the Holy Spirit <laughs> it's just awful 
People have no consideration for God at all. Whenever God shines a light on me, open up my eyes so I can see. When I look up in the darkest night, then I know everything is going to be all right. In deep confusion, in great despair, when I reach out for him, he is there. When I am lonely as I can be, and I know that. With him, your troubles you can share. You can share if you love. If you love, if you love, the life you love, you get the blessing yeah. from above. From above. In Nigeria, a group of vigilantes uh, decided to turn in a goat because there were two hooligans, I guess, trying to steal a Mazda, and they ran away. One of the pe- one of the hooligans ran away, and the other one transformed into a goat. This is what the vigilantes are claiming. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, look, let, let's understand what's happening here. Okay, they see the two guys running away, and they're like, "Let's go get the some of my bitches." They were right. trying to steal the car, right? And one of them, they lose track, and they're like, "Damn it!" And then the other one, they see, and they see a goat. All right. And they don't think we lost track of the other guy too. Right. They think, well, obviously he turned into a goat. I'm not kidding. This is a real story. And they, what they did was they took the goat and they brought him into uh, to jail. Right. And what's amazing is the goat is being held for armed robbery. Like, they're taking it seriously. They're like, okay, well, all right, we'll just kind of wait for him to transform back, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's really sad because some parts, you know, of Nigeria really believe in witchcraft. And they believe that this young hooligan used witchcraft to turn into a goat. Why a goat, I wonder? I don't know. Well, because they saw a goat. Like, they lost track of the kid, and they're like... No, no, no. I mean, why did the kid, who was stealing the car, decide to turn himself into a goat? Because no one suspects the goat. Maybe you're right. But I would have gone with lion, you mm-hmm. know, and then be like... Wah! Right. And then scare the people away. And you know what? I bet the other one turned into a puddle, and that's why they didn't catch him. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Wonder twin powers activate in the form of a goat. And a puddle. They should brought in the puddle, too, for, as in, right. for armed robbery. How do they know the second one didn't turn into a pebble? Right, that's so Could've true. Been. Now, look, he, I, it's a funny story, but it's, a, it's also an amazing story. That, that's why I love it so much. Because we are all little children. Uh, we, human history has not evolved that much. We've only been around, really, cities have been around for about 10,000 years. Cave art started 30,000 years ago. In the scope of time, we're tiny, tiny infants. We don't know what the hell we're doing. We believe in sky gods and, you know, and the terrible things that are going to happen in the fiery hells. And, uh, and, and we believe in witchcraft throughout the world. Mm-hmm. You know, Nigeria is not the only place. And those people actually believe that the kid turned himself into a goat. It's because we don't know any better. I mean, and that's why, look, science is the answer. Okay. Science is the answer. When you learn science, you understand that it is not possible for a human to turn into a quote. But then people will say, no, culture, culture, culture. 
My culture says you can turn into a goat. Yes, but that's interesting. But your culture is wrong. It is wrong and ridiculous. I don't mean to get too serious on it, but but now we look at, and judge that culture, but we got to look at our own culture. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because do we say, oh, your goat story is so crazy. That's obviously not true. What's obviously true is that God created his son and then killed him, crucified him, and then sucked him back up to the heaven, and then he brought people back to life, and he created fish and the wine, it's and it walked on water, but that's not ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And we're all going to get sucked up into the sky one day, and that's not ridiculous. All of it is ridiculous. The answer is science, not goats. You know, my brother showed me the craziest film, um, and I'm going to butcher its name because I don't know how it's pronounced. It's like Zeitgeist or something. That's right. No, Have Zeitgeist. you seen that? I have. It's amazing. I think every single American should be required to sit down and watch that. <laughs> no, I'm required. serious because it, they have different, you know, sections of the film, and the first thing they talk about is religion. Mm -hmm. And when they explain the origin of religion, where Christianity came from, you just look at it and you just think, wow, people who believe in it are mental. No, but I, they're not mental. They don't know. They don't know. That's exactly. why they should watch it. Now, Zeitgeist has, the, the movie overall has some issues, right? And they get into a lot of different conspiracy theories, some of which make sense, some of which don't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Okay? But the part about religion is phenomenal. It is. It's really good. It, Anna's exactly right. You watch it and you go, even me, who I knew a lot of it, right? Mm -hmm. But the way they put it together, I was like, oh, of course, in the Pisces and the age of mm -hmm. Pisces and the age of Aquarius and that's why all those goofballs who believe in you know I love you I don't mean to call you goofball you just you don't know it, they put the little fish on their car yeah and they don't realize it all goes back to the stars and the early interpretation of the stars by humans etc they don't even know what the fish is for right you know right if for those of you who didn't watch it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I know about. you it's have to see it. It's too long to get into it, but you have you do have to see it. It's funny because my brother is the one who introduced me to it. He's like, "You got to watch this. It's going to blow your mind." And I was like, "What is this?" He's like, "You got to watch it." He's like, "Jake would love it." And I was like, <laughs> "Okay." So I sat down. Well, and it I turns out it. the big arm was right. Right, he I was did, right. I, I did love it. I almost feel like maybe we should just run it on a post game show or something. That should totally happen. That should happen. At least the religion part of it. No, no, not the whole movie. Definitely mm -hmm. no. No, just the religion part of it. Because it shows you, like, look, I'll tell you a real quick part of it, and then we'll move on to the other stories. Um, you know how uh, in Christianity and also in other cultures, uh, there is a God that di uh, dies, or the Son of God, mm -hmm. that dies and then is reborn three days later mm -hmm. between December, and it's usually... Uh, now, it's mixed up because that happens in Easter, theoretically, right? But at the same time, uh, when it really happens is between December 22nd and December 25th. And what it is, is it's uh, related to the sun. Mm -hmm. The sun, apparently on December 22nd, that's when it's at its lowest point, stays at the same place for three days. Right. And then rises again and begins to, you get longer and longer days, starting on December 25th. Jesus, if you look at the Bible, is not born on December 25th. He's born in June or April, depending on how you interpret it, etc. Okay, and then you see the other cultures that believe the same thing. You go, oh, that's why the sun. Well, the sun is a different words in different languages, but this God kind of creature dies for three days and then is reborn on December 25th. Mm -hmm. And when they put that part of the puzzle together, which I did not know, I was like, oh, it's over. O-V-A-H, OVA. OVA. Nobody can believe this. All right. Sorry for those of you who are religious. We love you anyway. Okay? We just have a difference. Much love.
Carlton had always preached a pretty conventional evangelical theology. Hell was a horrible place, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for eternity. And the only way to avoid it was to accept Jesus. But he was always reading and studying the Bible's origins, boning up on the original Hebrew and Greek. And he had begun to doubt some of the stuff he'd been preaching. And it all came to a head one evening in front of the television. When my little girl, who will be nine next month, was an infant, I was watching the, the evening news. The, the Hutus and Tutsus were returning from Rwanda to Uganda. And, and uh, Peter Jennings was doing a piece on it. Now Majesty was in my lap, my little girl. I'm eating the meal, and I'm watching these little kids with swollen bellies. And it looks like their skin is stretched across their little skeletal remains. Their hair is kind of red from malnutrition. The babies are, they've got flies in the corners of their eyes and of their mouths. And they reach for their mother's breast. And the mother's breast looks like a little pencil hanging there. I mean, the baby's reaching for the breast. There's no milk. And I, my little fat-faced baby and a plate of food and a big screen television. And I said, God, I don't know how you could call yourself a loving, sovereign God and allow these people to suffer this way and just suck them right into hell, which is what was my assumption. And I heard a voice say within me, so that's what you think we're doing? And I remember I didn't say yes or no. I said, that's what I've been taught. We're sucking them into hell. I said, yes. And what would change that? Well, they need to get saved. And how would that happen? Well, somebody needs to preach the gospel to them and get them saved. So. If you think that's the only way they're going to get saved is for somebody to preach the gospel to them and that we're sucking them in the hell, why don't you put your little baby down, turn your big screen television off, push your plate away, get on the first thing smoking, and go, go get them saved. Now, and I remember I, I broke in, into tears. I was very upset. I, I remember thinking, God, don't put that guilt on me. You know, I've given you the best 40 years of my life. Besides, I can't save the whole world. I'm doing the best I can. I can't save this whole world. And that's what I remember. And I, I believe it was God saying precisely, you can't save this world. That's what we did. You think we're sucking them into hell? Can't you see they're already there? That, that's hell. You keep creating and inventing that for yourselves. I'm taking them into my presence. And I thought, well, I'll be... That's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's where the pain comes from. We do that to each other and we do it to ourselves. Then I saw emergency rooms. I saw divorce court. I saw jails and prisons. I saw how we create hell on this planet for each other. And I, for the first time in my life, I did not see God as the inventor of hell. Here's what makes me right. I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to a, a, little Thai, a little Tibetan monk. He's been a Tibetan monk for the fourth generation. Here's a monk that all he does is every morning he takes the goats... He milks the goats, takes them to another pasture. He works in the garden. He says some prayers. He burns some incense. He's never married. He doesn't kill, cuss, fight, lie. He never heard the gospel, never seen a television or radio or a track. He lived way up there in the, in the cold. 
He's taken goats to a one pasture, slips off a cliff, falls into a valley and dies. Is there a Jesus anywhere? To receive that man. Or is the devil there? Sucking them all into hell. Now I would say, no, no, no. My God loves you. of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is presented. He's, he's, he's a monster. The God we've been preaching is a monster. He's worse than Saddam. He's worse than Osama bin Laden. He's worse than Hitler, the way we presented him. Because Hitler just burnt six million Jews. You know, but God's going to burn at least six billion people and, and burn them forever. It's this customized torture chamber called hell, where he's going to torment, torture not for a few minutes or a few days or a few hours or a few weeks, but forever. returns from a two-millennium-long vacation. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Believers the world over rejoice today upon learning that the Lord God has finally returned from his 2,000-year vacation on the tropical planet Velosis 5. He looked tan, rested, and ready to get back to shepherding his chosen people, the Jews. God's press secretary had this to say. Yeah, the, uh, the Lord had a very restful trip, but he realized the prayers were, were piling up and uh, thought he should... Uh, Get back to his desk. The Almighty has reportedly been brought up to speed on all earthly events over the last two millennia by his son, Jesus, who now runs the home office. Jesus' predecessor, the Holy Ghost, was fired for cooking the books in the year 1225. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Turn off your tears and 
the story you have totally totally okay mm-hmm. so everybody calm down now I need you to take a couple steps back relax and now now that you've done that let's move forward Anna what is the Pope story the Pope is declaring a holy war against all people who make false claims that they've seen the Virgin Mary now I, I here's why I love this story you know why right he's not going against the I don't know who you would declare holy war against these days I don't know Muslims Jews uh, Satanists, <laughs> but he's going against people who are challenging the church authority. No, no, no. The church deals in miracles. Right. We're the ones selling BS here, okay? And if you dare to try to sell BS without our authorization, right. you're going to be in for a world of trouble here, son. And that's why I like it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, he's issuing guidelines on distinguishing between real or demonic versions of Mary. Oh, there's demonic versions there, of Mary. There are demonic versions. What, what he and the Catholic Church are worried about in this instance is that people are going to make false claims that they've seen the Virgin Mary, and uh, they are going to make members of the Catholic Church switch over to, like, some cult. You know what that is? He's worried about the competition. Right. He's like, we run the cult here, okay, not you little guys. So I don't want you running around telling me you've seen the Virgin Mary, you've seen Jesus Christ, uh, you've got this stigmata with the you know the hands on the feet with the bleeding, or any statues that are uh, crying milk or water or whatever the hell they're crying. Now, what I love is the several-step process that they go through. Okay, so they say first we're going to send in some psychiatrists to make sure you're not crazy. Well, why don't I send in psychiatrists after your ass, Ratzinger, and see if you're crazy? Right, uh, and then he's after, and then he says we're going to bring scientists and clergy, etc. But my the last step is the one I love. They send in demon experts, demonologists. They call them demonologists to make sure whether what you've seen is, as Anna explained, mm-hmm. the real Virgin Mary or the demon version of Virgin Mary. Right. Uh, look. I, I, or whether you're possessed by the demon. I mean, come on, look, seriously. This is why I get crazy about stories like this. How do you folks believe this stuff? How does anybody believe it? Look at the, the, the Pope dressed up in his funny outfit. I mean, it tell you I'm in charge of selling crazy here, and I can't have any other competitors. Who listens to the Pope and goes, oh, right, the demonization expert. Oh, I'm glad he brought that guy in to see if it's a real Virgin Mary sighting or a fake Virgin Mary sighting based on a cult that is not as cool and hip and connected to God as we are. I mean, that's madness, isn't it? My favorite part of this is the third step will be to investigate the person's level of education and and to determine if they have access to material that could be used to falsely support their claims. In other words, Mm -hmm. if you're educated enough to make false claims, you're in trouble. Right, exactly. Now, if you're ignorant, okay, then, hey, maybe we can have a conversation because then we can get you over to our cult. Exactly. Right, but if you're educated, you're in a lot of trouble here. Never been in favor of education, the church has. All right, look, uh, you email us at theyoungturks.com. If you're, and I know Catholics are probably greatly offended by this. Right. uh, But tell me how you can believe it. Explain it to me. Have me understand it. I don't get it, man. You really believe there's demonologists? And people are possessed by a demon or not? And the Pope sends in somebody and figures that out? 
to find out if you're bleeding on purpose or if it's fake or whatever. It seems to the rest of us that don't believe it, it seems like that you're lunatics if you believe that. Maybe I'm being too strong here, but I just can't see a rational reason behind it. So tell us at theyoungturks.com what I'm missing, because I don't see it. Mm -hmm. uh, it. To me, it seems like they're running a nice racket here, and he doesn't want that racket disturbed at all by other crazies. All right, Sam Huddy, our uh, intern, is going to jump in here for the second time. Uh, Sam, what do you got for us? As someone who's been in Catholic school for many years, mm -hmm. who was, um, I'm going to have to say that I've never met anyone who would believe that. And uh, I, I do know that people are annoyed when people keep saying they see the Virgin Mary in weird, like, in just, like, everything. Ooh, I spilled some Coca-Cola. It's shaped like the Virgin Mary. It's annoying. Yeah, no, I hear you on that. What I just can't believe is that you believe the rest of the stuff. And by the way, this happened near my house once, mm -hmm. you know. And I don't mean you personally, Sam. I mean all of it. But do you, by the way? I'm curious. No. Um, but, but I have to say... Uh, I think that, that that's just to discourage people from making claims, like, at all. Like, if people have to go through all kinds of red tape. Yeah. Right, right. They're like, yeah, I saw the Virgin Mary, but, man, the process is a real pain in the ass. I don't know if I want to go through it. It's true, because you got to mm -hmm. jump through all these hoops. And they say, like, they've uh, verified only 11 or 13 claims of this. And, yeah, in the past, like, 100 years. In the past 100 years, and they're mainly in 1917. Right. Because it's easy for them to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy, yeah, he totally saw the Virgin Mary, and he's totally a saint. Now, if I come and say, I saw the Virgin Mary, they're like, that guy's crazy. Mm -hmm. Right? But 100 years later, they might be like, oh, he's totally a saint. So, anyway, uh, by my house in Freehold, by my parents' house in Freehold, mm -hmm. there was someone who claimed to see the Virgin Mary. And I think every Sunday she came to visit, and the place would blow up on Sundays. People would go there to see the oh, Virgin Mary? from everywhere. And nobody ever saw it. Mm -hmm. But the person would come out and be like, yeah, I saw it. Oh, wow, they saw it again. Oh, my God, oh, that's terrific. And then they all go home. Now, what, they busted that up eventually. You know mm -hmm. what happened? What? The church sent in some folks with some, a couple of lead pipes and a blowtorch. Oh, jeez. And now, Not literally, right? But they went after the, uh, I think it was a woman, uh -huh. and, until they, and then they came out and they declared, no, 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 this is fake. Only people who wear the funny red robes and the funny red hats can see the Virgin Mary. This person is, you know, far too educated to see the Virgin Mary, or whatever. They have right. some excuse. And they shut her ass down, because she's a threat to their livelihood. I just, I love you folks. You know, You've got to get beyond it. The Pope is going to, like, bust through our doors. If we keep doing these stories. No, no, no. He's fine with the non-believers. He's fine. But he's, he's not fine with the believers who could potentially steal his clients. Exactly. Right. Okay. Now, if I started a church of, like, stop being Catholics and come to my church. Right. Oh, then he's going to come after me full, the, you know, Opus Dei. Dude, we should do it. <laughs> no, wait, we should do it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I need. I need to start a religion. And I won't be satisfied till there's nothing left that I haven't tried. For some people it's an easy choice, but for me there's a devil and an angel's voice. Well, I don't know what I am looking for, but I know that I just want to look some
For Steve Strogatz, a mathematician who we sometimes have on the show, it all started with a pendulum. He was sitting in math class. Our teacher handed us a little toy pendulum. Basically just a little device with a ball on the end of a string. That was retractable. That is, you could change the length of the string. Like an old telescope, you know, on, that the pirate stretches out a spyglass, click, click, click. You could make it longer in discrete clicks. And then the teacher gave us a stopwatch and said, I want you to time how long it takes for this pendulum to swing back and forth ten times. Okay, so I do the experiment. Ten swings. I record how, how many seconds it took. Then he says, now make the pendulum a little bit longer. One click longer. Click. Do it again. And as you might expect, since now the string is longer, it takes a bit more time to make the ten swings. And I write down the number. Click. Do it again. Click. Do it again. And I do this five or six times, dutifully plotting the, the results on graph paper, which is what the experiment was really supposed to teach us, how to use graph paper. So he's clicking, measuring, making a little dot. Click. Measure. Dot. Click. Measure. Dot. Soon the thing is filled with dots, and that is when he noticed something. This spooky thing was happening, which is that the dots were falling on an arc, on a curve. They weren't on a straight line. They fell on a particular curve, and I noticed that this curve was a curve I had seen before because I had just learned about it in algebra class, and it's called a parabola. And this really gave me the creeps. I had a sort of feeling of the hairs on the back of my neck standing up because it was as if this inanimate thing, this pendulum, knew algebra. (laughs) (laughs) My 13-year-old mind couldn't understand that. How could... How could this thing swinging back and forth know something about parabolas, or or how could that be built in? Then, an even creepier thought occurred to him. Wait a second. This parabola on my paper, which is the same one as the math book, is also out in the world. It's the, the shape that water makes coming out of a water fountain. It's also the shape of, you know, when you shoot a rocket into the sky and it slowly descends. It's that. It was in that moment that I suddenly understood what people mean when they say there's a law of nature. Do you remember what it was that made your hair stand on end? Was it that you had peeked in and discovered a secret, or that you just simply found the right answer? Much closer to the first thing you said, that there was this sort of veil over reality, a hidden universe that you couldn't see unless you knew math. It really felt like being let into some sort of secret society. And that wasn't so much the point. I mean, it's not like I cared about being in this priesthood. It, it was, it's a very intimate, personal thing, this feeling of wonder, of a sense of living in an incomprehensible and beautiful universe. And but but partly chance. comprehensible. That's the beauty of it. I mean, if you're a lobster, you don't have this thought, right? A lobster doesn't get to think about the laws of nature. And so I've often thought to myself that It's a blessing that we live in a certain window of intelligence, that if we were infinitely smart, godlike, we'd have such powerful brains, we could see every implication of everything. So math wouldn't be fun for a a being that's too smart. And of course, for the lobster that's not smart enough, math is no fun for them either. It's in this intermediate window where math and science become uh, something to rejoice in. Today's program is about a kind of search 
a search for order, for patterns, hidden truth, hidden truth, and it's about the scientists who, who go out looking for those things and sometimes find them. Whoa, what's that? And sometimes don't. I felt humiliated. I felt stupid. The question is, what makes these people tick? And we're calling this show. Why do I love the fly? That's eating my brain. That'll make sense later. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krowich. This is Radio Lab. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Off we go. I think there's always been a desire to somehow categorize and classify the world around us. Remember it? And when you were in, I don't know when it would be, like in eighth grade, when they, when the teacher comes in in general science and he pulls down the periodic table of elements? Remember oh, yeah, that? sure. I mean, that was one of the first times where I was like, yeah, I don't want to be a scientist. It's not for me. <laughs> but for kids who love this kind of thing, take Oliver Sacks, for example. Yeah, Chad, you should come in. I should come in? Okay. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, we had went to talk to Oliver Sacks about something. Well, it was actually mostly you that was going to talk to him, and I was just tagging along for the hell of it. Yep. And for some reason... We ended up in his bathroom. I tend to read a little bit in the toilet. Maybe to look at a book or something? He seems to have facts and figures in his as well. There's a lot of us in there. I'm sorry. Sorry. And that's when uh, we noticed... Well, you the periodic chart in the bathroom. In every, in every bathroom. <laughs> but he had a periodic table of the elements on the wall in the bathroom. So here we are. We thought, wow, how funny. Periodic table in the bathroom. But then he said, well, you know, if you go out into the couch, you'll see... Periodic table cushions. Some cushions embroidered with a periodic table. And then he took us to his bedroom. Although I don't usually take people into my bedroom. Oh, we'll come. Where he showed us his periodic table comforter. <laughs> I, um, I tend to sleep here right under tungsten. <laughs> but the cool part was when he took us to the living room, where he had this... Uh, Describe what isn't before us here. It um, looks like an altar. It's like a little, a little dictionary stand on top of which was a beautiful mahogany box. A fine wooden box. About the size of a backgammon set. Called periodic table of the elements. It is a very fine wooden box. Uh, and, and if you care to open it... Right, it's... it's, it's uh, it's made of some sort of fine wood. It comes from Russia. It does. All right. And is there a trick to opening this? Um. Okay, we've all seen the periodic table you know, on a chart, but in Oliver's box, there, there were the actual elements. Oh, these are all these. We have here like 90-some-odd little... Uh, Little tubes, little samples, little teeny vials of almost all the elements silver, arsenic, bismuth, cobalt, oxygen, copper, hydrogen, phosphorus, iron, manganese, mercury, nitrogen, molybdenum, gold. Since I'm, for example, having my 72nd birthday tomorrow, yes. and element 72 is hafnium, there is a little hafnium. Um, Two little rocks. Here, here's, what, here's what they sound like if you rattle them. I, I, I have coming to me, I hope it arrives today, an ingot of hafnium, which would be very much more satisfying. <laughs> um, what would you do with an ingot that you can't do with the two little pebbles? Uh, I'll be able to hold it in my hand. My first love of chemistry had to do with the, the sensuous. So here, one of the liquid elements, bromine. I, I loved the colors, the brown, faintly brown, fluidy thing. Um, yeah. The luster, pale golden mercury. Very 
very, very beautiful. The the physical properties. This is a gas trapped in little vials. Yes. Uh, one one wouldn't want to drop that. Why not? Uh, well, it's it's not good to breathe. Can I just jump in here for a second? Sure. Because um, I, I I really need to jump in. <laughs> but the thing that's really crazy about that box, and this you don't get from uh, from looking at a periodic chart on the wall, is that all those elements? Lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen. That's like the world. I mean, everything that we can see and perceive. This table right here, the teeth in my mouth, the sky, the ocean, the mountains. It's all made of some combination of elements from that box. And the box itself gives it all a deep, deep order. I had noticed myself, one can't help noticing, that the elements are organized in a very special sort of way. For example... May I excuse you for a moment? I, I, I have managed to not notice. I find it a little odd that you could organize them at all. I, I don't even know how to begin the, the process of figuring out they're okay. related in some um, way. Well, well then, then you are sort of um, recapitulating what, you know, what, what everyone felt in the, in the early days. Of course, in the really early days, people thought there were just four elements. The ancient notion of elements uh, took the form of Earth... Air, fire, and water. Basically, the thought that the whole world could be composed of these four ingredients in different ways. But then, in the 18th century, we're skipping ahead a bit, yep. chemists began to break things down into uh, smaller pieces, like wind became... Gases, like oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen. And earth got divided up into things like sulfur, phosphorus, iron. By the way, in order to do this kind of investigating, do you have to boil and pull and tug and fry and steam and do things like that? All of the above. So to fast forward, after enough of this boiling and tugging and frying and steaming, uh -huh. chemists got all the way down to the root of it, which was the atom. That's really what an element is. It's a particular kind of atom. The problem was, though, when chemists began to start measuring these atoms, they found that they were all different sizes and types. Like, one would be heavy, another would be light. Third one would be really friendly, likes to link up with other atoms, whereas the fourth would be a loner. And they would come in combinations, like heavy, friendly, heavy, shy. Light, friendly, light, shy. What was the pattern? That was the question. Could they fit all of these differences and similarities into one big schema? Since we mentioned his name, let me here show you a picture of the... Um, um, Here's where we get to Oliver's hero. The Siberian bigamist, uh, <laughs> as he is called. That would be Dmitry Mendeleev. The great Mendeleev, whom we will talk about. Oliver has a black and white picture of him on uh, his kitchen cabinet. Uh, this man is not going to win any, any beauty contest. Um, no, no, no he, uh, he looks like a mixture between uh, Rasputin and... Um, uh, who do I mean? Well, you mean he has a big nose, a shaggy, slightly unkempt white beard, a mustache that goes all over the place, piercing eyes, thick eyebrows, and looks like he's in a hunchback position. Generally, if you met him on the sidewalk, you'd probably want to walk around him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't believe in wasting time going to a barber. Let me just ask you, as to the degree of your passion, when you look at this man, do you think he's a beautiful-looking guy, or do you see what I see? Um, I think Mendeleev had a beautiful mind. Okay, in 1860, 
uh, around 1860, there were trains going all over Russia, and Mendeleev could afford to take trains. He was often on enormous journeys, and to while away the time, since he couldn't do chemical experiments or whatever, he would take playing cards with the name of various elements, their chemical and physical properties, and he would play what he called chemical solitaire. Sorting them for likeness or uh, sorting them? I'm afraid I, 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 I don't know the details. But you know what we can imagine, right? Sure. So let's just say he's there, sitting there on the train, he's looking out the window, he sees trees made of carbon. Carbon. A lake made of hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen, oxygen. Behind that, a mountain. Mountains, yeah. Made of silica. Silica. And he's shuffling their properties and their atomic weights in his mind. Wondering. How do these things go together? What's the pattern? And he's shuffling. I'm shuffling. 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 And he did this for years. Until one night. This we think is true. In February of 1869, he is said to have had a dream. In his dream, all the atoms of all the elements of all the world, the fat ones, the small ones, the dense ones, the heavy ones, the friendly ones, the shy ones, they all began to dance in his mind, and then they snapped into a grid. He awoke with a vision of the periodic table. This is one of those <laughs> dreams, which he then wrote on the back of an envelope. The thing about what he wrote on the back of that envelope is that it starts out so simply. Left to right, the atoms just get heavier and heavier and heavier. Heavier, heavier, heavier. But every so often, and this is what he intuited in his dream, is that while they're getting heavier, there are other traits, like whether they're shy or magnetic or whatever, those traits oh. repeat. Periodically change back again. And every time they do, start a new row. The properties repeat again. <laughs> Out of this simple repeating structure, Very nice. hush, Mendeleev, you get a table that you can read in a million ways. There are so many ways to read this table. I think I'm going to call this the periodic table. <laughs> that if you use your imagination, you can see yourself in there. I, I was a rather shy kid with a, a difficulty forming relationships, um, and I sometimes compared myself to the inert gases. Inert gases are very isolated. They react with nothing. Because I, I felt they, they too had difficulties forming relationships. But um, I did... Uh he has now left the chair and has moved to the library and is taking out any hugely thick, actually a dangerously thick book. This is the Handbook of Physics and Chemistry. As you see, it says 5,000 pages. I had a smaller version as a boy, and um, from brooding in this book, it seemed to me just possible that one of the inert gases, xenon, might be seduced into combination by the most active element of all, which was fluorine. This lonely, lonely gas might find a partner somehow. Um, yeah. Did they ever get together? In fact, it came to me with great joy when I found out uh, in the 1960s that a, actually a Canadian chemist uh, had, in fact, made a fluoride of xenon. Ah, ah yes. Elemental love. <laughs> and speaking of love, he then took us... I think let's come right. here. All One right. sec. Where are we going? Okay. To the living room. And he showed us a small painting. 
In the painting, there was this dramatic figure of a bearded, scowling character on the side of a mountain, holding two stone tablets over his head, and the sky was filled with lightning. And who was it? It was Dmitry Mendeleev. When I heard of how Mendeleev had um, discovered the periodic table, I imagined Mendeleev as a sort of Moses going up to a chemical Sinai and coming down with the tablets of the periodic law. And when I mentioned this fantasy to Peter Selgin, my friend, uh, uh, an artist, uh, he did this imaginative picture of the young Mendeleev, the peaks of a chemical Sinai behind him, holding aloft the tablets of the periodic table. Which raises maybe the deepest question of all. Did Mendeleev think this up and impose it upon the world? Or was this pattern always there? In which case Mendeleev just removed the veil and said, oh, there you are. Is the periodic table a discovery or an invention? Is it a human construct or is it a revelation of the cosmic or divine order? Is it, so to speak, God's abacus? Thanks for listening, everybody. So I have something a little bit different for you today. There is something, as there so often is, something for us to discuss. we got to sit down. we got to have a little chat about this. It's very important. It's very important to me, very important to the show, and by extension, uh, relatively important to all of those of you who care about the, uh, you know, the success and, you know, more importantly, the continuation of the show. Now, don't worry, you know, there's no, like, fear of the show going under anytime soon. This is not a, uh, an emergency call to action. But it, it is something that, uh, that needs to be dealt with. And lucky for me, very recently, uh, another podcaster basically was going through uh, not quite the same thing, but a, a really similar uh, sort of uh, period in, in his podcasting career. And... His name is Patrick McLean. He's the host and uh, producer of the Shanaki podcast. It's a, it's a great podcast where he uh, writes and then performs very, very short stories that, and does a really fantastic job, really high-quality production. And, um, and so he does a great job. And recently he released this podcast, and he was able to say, you know, I think because he put a lot of time into how he was going to word it, and he's a... Uh, writer anyway so he's kind of naturally good at getting a message across and he was able to say the things that I need to say um, but in a much better way than I would have uh, off the cuff so I decided to uh, just steal from him as as I so often do and uh, and just have him talk about his show and your job is to think about how it relates to the best of the left as you listen and I'll be back with more explanation and uh, exactly how this relates to us in a moment. So uh, l- let's have a listen to this. There is no they. There's just us. Just you and me. And if what I do has power for you, as it has power for me, if in any small way I am able to help you expand your experience of being alive, then there is no limit to how far we can take this. And that is what relaunching the Shanaki is all about. Yeah, there's a Succeed in Evil novel coming. And yes, there will be more Succeed in Evil episodes very soon. 
But evil's not all I got. Not topically. Not stylistically. I have a filing cabinet drawer five feet long, and it's packed. Packed to the point of not being able to fit another piece of paper in it. And it's filled with unfinished ideas. And I'll grant you that a full four feet of that drawer sucks. But in the last 12 inches, there are diamonds. So I'm turning pro. And that's going to change a number of things. But it also means, in some form or fashion, that my activity has to generate cash. Not much, but some. I can live on crumbs, but I can't live on dust. When I look at this with my financial hat on, it's a dollar a month from everyone who listens. A dollar an episode would be nuts. Grow the audience a bit, that would do it. And when I say it out loud, it sounds easy. And the only reason I'm concerned about this is that, for all our technology and all our smarts, we really don't have the cultural infrastructure to make it happen. But it's not impossible. Because we already have the essential thing. The hard part is done. A creator and an audience. You see, if I was doing this on a street corner, if I had a tip jar in the corner coffee shop, this problem would have already solved itself. It's not much change. But my coffee shop is infinite. And then a little bit later on, he went on to say... Second, this is now a shareware podcast. If you listen, it's a dollar a month. If you listen and laugh, it's two dollars a month. If the idea of a shareware podcast is conceptually awkward, think of it as national podcast radio. Donate. Don't worry. Just like NPR, I won't let you forget about that part. So to add just a tiny bit of context to this uh, before I get into the meat of it, there was a, a period just a little while ago where I actually returned to the show after about a 10-month break. And I, I was able to take 10 months off from the show. Uh, another producer came in and kept it going while I was gone. And when I came back, I, I made a promise to myself that I would not allow myself to get sucked back into the old position of doing this show in a way that was not sustainable. And part of that deal with myself was that I, I would force myself to make time to work on ways of having this show generate some bit of an income just to sustain the show and make me feel like I was getting at least moderately compensated for my time. So as Patrick just described it, his goal was to live on crumbs rather than dust, which I loved. That's exactly how I feel, and, and I, I just didn't know how to say it myself and not sound like I was trying to get rich by, by doing this show. But that's exactly what it was. It's, it's the idea that I'd love to be able to do this for nothing, but I can't. I got to do it for a little bit. <laughs> so that was that was his game. His game is to, you know, write and produce shows that people like and are entertained by and try to be compensated for it, which I totally agree with. I mean, it's a great show and 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 I I really do hope that that he gets the support he's looking for from his audience. The Best of the Left has always been a different animal than that. We've always been about the audience supporting the show. And financial support is, has always only been a small part of it. From the very first episode, I began asking for people to help submit clips 
to supplement my own material for the show to help produce these episodes. And from very early on, we've asked uh, for people to help promote the show, either by leaving reviews in iTunes, voting at Podcast Alley. Uh, you know, once a year, we, uh, we get nominated for the Podcast Awards, and all of this helps the show. So what we're doing is, is much different than just a fundraiser. What we're doing is more of a holistic show support drive rather than just a fundraising drive. And so after much thought, much deliberation, and, uh, and lots of great effort by uh, our, our webmaster to get the website set up for this and, and all sorts of things, we've come up with, I think, a very simple and straightforward way for you to help the show. I've taken a bit of a lesson from the marketing world and broken it down to this very neat slogan, which isn't even really a slogan. It's just 555. All you need to remember is 555, and all the information you need is at bestofleft.com. The 555 is, this is how you support the show. Every six months, donate $5 to the podcast, or send in five clips to help us produce the show, or tell five friends about the show. That's it. Every single person listening can do one or more of those things in whatever combination they like. That's all I'm asking, and I think it's the most reasonable thing in the world. If you have the money to help support the show, it'll be immensely appreciated. It really does help you know, pay for the cost of the show and also the enormous amount of time that we put in to, to producing all these episodes. Secondly, sending in clips to the show makes a huge difference. And the people who have sent in clips know because I emailed them back saying, thank you so much, this saves me so much time. And everyone else who doesn't have the money and doesn't have the, the time or technical skills to send in clips, all you have to do is tell five friends about the show. Sit down for five minutes, write a personalized email to you know your five friends who you think will like the show and you know, maybe throw in one or two who you don't think will like the show, put in all their email addresses, and send it off, and you're done. And, you know, bl blame it on me. Say, like, hey, there's this podcast I listen to, and, uh, and I really like listening to it, but apparently I'm not allowed to listen to it anymore unless I tell five friends about it. So, unfortunately, I've had to send you this email. So that's what I'm asking of you, and I'm just asking that you consider this as, you know, again, stealing from Patrick, uh, which is the reason I had him on the show. I'd like for you to think of this as a shareware podcast. It's free. It's always going to be free. But you should feel sufficiently guilty now if you don't help the show because we've made it so easy and so straightforward to do so that there's really no excuse anymore. And if you think for one second that if you go to bestoftheleft.com, you're not going to be able to figure out, you know, okay, where do I go to donate? Uh, you know, I want to drop in a few bucks or you know, submitting clips. How do you submit clips? This is like, it seems kind of confusing or, you know, telling five friends, like, sure, I can send an email, but what do you want me to say? Or, you know, what other ways are there to help promote the show? You know, I, I've told my five friends, but I want to, you know, maybe do something else. If you think that if you go to the website, you won't be able to find all that information, then you haven't been to the website recently. Trust me. <laughs> and if you go to the website, you will see what I'm talking about. We've made it absolutely blatantly clear 
where you should go if you want to help. And uh, I hope you check it out. And believe me, I will be reminding you about this consistently throughout in the future. So finally, thanks thanks for listening. You know, I really do appreciate you listening uh, all the way through and hearing what I had to say about this. So until next time, coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. You know, people always ask me why I don't do more promos for the Shamaki. And the answer is, I'm not too sure how to describe it. At times, it's like this American life. At other times, it's really not. But it's always a good story, and it never wastes your time. At worst, it makes you laugh, and at its best, well, at its best, I hope it expands your experience of being alive. Yeah, that really narrows it down, doesn't it? So you see why I don't do promos. So instead of a promo, I'll just do a 30-second episode titled Rusty Bender. The Tin Man goes out drinking with the Scarecrow and wakes up in a cornfield covered in dew. And he realizes the reason the Scarecrow always drinks him under the table is that his belly is filled with straw. Alcohol-soaked straw. So he creaks off in search of a match. Gonna show that scarecrow. For more stories like this, but longer, visit theshanaki.com. That's T H E S E A N A C H I. The other reason I don't do promos is, well, I don't like admitting I named my podcast something no one knows how to spell. <laughs> <laughs>